We'll be looking at Job. Let me, before we pray, I just want to think through just a few questions by way of introduction. We're all aware of suffering, and as I think about you as a church, I know there is some specific and particular suffering that is happening. Suffering is not uncommon, something that we all go through at some point. When I was young, I just, you don't think about suffering. You don't even think about the suffering that you go through when you're young a lot of times. So the youngsters, I think, that may be hearing this, this might sound like I'm preaching in Chinese when I preach about suffering. For some reason, it just won't compute. But by God's grace, I hope that you remember it for when you do suffer. And for those of you that are older and more seasoned as I am becoming, I'm not caught up with most of you. I think I can say that. <laughs> I'm getting close, though. Um, as you get older, you do. You have these experiences of suffering. And if you're paying attention at all, listening to the radio or watching TV, we see suffering around us. We see suffering around the world. And we, we've seen it recently, right, as the fire's up in uh, paradise. Paradise lost, I think, is what I heard on the radio. Gone. Almost the entire city is gone. And we're breathing in that city right now. It's crazy. And we had a this very similar experience, what, almost 13 months ago now, where our city was on fire. And throughout the world, shootings, that stuff going on. And, you know, we, we live in a little bit of an insulated society in some ways. We're insulated from death. We're insulated from this kind of suffering, and some of that we've worked very hard to accomplish, and it's good things. I work in an industry that I sell fire hydrants. Those are good things, and we put out fires with them, and we have hospitals, and we have health care, and we have all kinds of things, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I believe there will come a time in each of our lives in which there is no more health care in which there is no more fire hydrants. There's nothing that's going to put out what's going on in your life. We will reach that point when we're suffering. And the question that we need to answer, I think, before we get into it is, what are we going to believe during that time? What promises are you going to cling to when you're suffering? So let me pray, and then we will dive into Job, and you know, I don't expect to answer all of your questions about suffering, but I want to give at least a thumbnail sketch, because our suffering is individual. It is unique in some ways. So let's pray, and then we will jump into to Job and examine it. Father, thank you for this opportunity to open your word and to think through suffering. We know that in your plan that there is no pointless suffering, but God, it still hurts. And so I think of those who have lost homes, who have lost loved ones, who have lost friends in this last deadly fire. And I think of those even from last year that are still trying to recover Father, we just ask that your word would minister to our hearts. 
We ask that we would trust you in the midst of suffering, and we ask that this would encourage us this morning. Father, we love you. We can only love you because you first loved us, and we pray that we would reciprocate that love with obedience and with worship. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So the book of Job. I titled this message, Who is Job About? Well, surprise, it's not about Job. He is one of the key players in the book of Job. That is not surprising either. And he has some friends that show up to counsel him. They're not very good friends, if you've read the book of Job and are familiar at all. But first, I want us to examine the time frame of the book of Job. When, was, when were the events? When did they take place? The time of the events of the book date back to maybe the time of Abraham or even before Abraham, but most likely not before the flood. Now, we see this through the internal evidence of the book, and I can share that with you afterwards. I don't think it's important to go into all that. Just suffice it to say, I think there's internal evidence to point us to a time post-flood, Abraham or pre-Abraham. The point for us now is this is a very old account. An aspect of it, too, I want us to think about is though it was an old account, the book may have been written sometime later. An estimate that I've seen for this is it was written about the time of the post-Babylonian exile of the Jews, which puts it about written about 587 to 538 B.C., now, I actually have a point in telling you this. <laughs> Both of these ideas, when the events took place and when they were written down as Scripture, I believe have significance for us. When we consider how old the events are, we should be encouraged to know that God's plan has always been the same. You see, Job touches on some very key doctrines very early in God's plan of salvation. Let me give you three just to start off with. I believe there are more, but we'll start here. The first, write down Job 9.33. Job declares that he has no one who can be an arbiter between he and God. No one who can put a hand on both of them to reconcile Job to God. Who can fill that gap? Who can fully understand what it means to be human and what it means to be fully God? And not just as an intellectual exercise, but as a means of reconciling two parties, God and man. After all, that is what an arbiter does. Now we know that this finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you want a few cross references for that, where we see Jesus as the one who fills this role, jot down Hebrews 2:17 and following, Hebrews 3:1 and following, Hebrews 4:14 and following. In fact, just read Hebrews. It's all about how Jesus is greater. 
He's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. Jot down 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. You see, it is, hum- it is his humanity that makes him one that can reconcile us to God. And that was touched on in Job's experience. Second, jot down Job 19, verse 25. This is incredible. Job knows he has a living redeemer. And that his redeemer will eventually stand on the earth. Let's, look at, let's just read it together. Job 19, <clears throat> verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand on the earth. Amen, Amen is right. Now, in order to stand on the earth, you have to have legs and feet. Do you see my point? I believe this harkens us back to Genesis chapter 3 when God promised to put enmity between the serpent seed and the woman's seed. And what will happen? He will crush the head. But he will be struck on the heel. I call that to mind because... I'm not sure these references would have been super clear when they were originally received. Because standing on the earth can also have a metaphorical idea that, well, God reigns over all. He's going to be basically be victorious. But now we have the advantage of looking back through the cross and we see clearly God has only had one plan and he has worked faithfully to fulfill that plan. Third, consider Job 19, verses 26 through 27. Since we're there, why don't we read it? And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. You see, Job plans on dying one day. It's a punishment for our sin. It's judgment for our sin. We not only inherited Adam's sin, we ourselves are guilty of sin, are we not? We are guilty. So Job knows that there is judgment coming at one one point. So he plans on dying. But he also plans on being resurrected so that he may see God for himself. Now, this is a very compact statement. Job plans on seeing God with his own eyes even after he dies. You see that? Even after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. 
I do not know how they would have understood this back then. They must, it must have been such a mysterious writing to them. But for us, it's, it, it couldn't be any clearer, could it? You see, God's plan has been the same. Clearly, Job had some understanding of resurrection. But don't, don't lose sight of this. Who in the context is God here? It is the Redeemer who is standing upon the earth. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand on the earth. And following that, it's saying, I'm going to see this with my own eyes. Even though I'm, I'm just a bag of worm food eventually. That's what Martin Luther called himself. I'm just I'm a sack of worm food. We are. Eventually, we're, we're going to be eaten up. But even though that happens, even though all my skin gets eaten up, and I'm just bones left over, eventually... I will see this one standing on the earth with my very eyes. It's none other than God. God's plan has never been different, never changed. It's not a part two, it's not a plan B. It's always been plan A. Save people for his glory. The other big picture idea I want us to get from the later recording of these events, if indeed it was written later, and I think there is good evidence to say that it was, I believe this informs how we view the scriptures. This is important for us in how we study the scriptures and how we understand the scriptures. You see, with the later writing of the account, It really emphasizes to us, and I know you guys came here this morning wanting to hear about this very word I'm going to say next. So important. You guys are probably arguing with your wife, and you're thinking, I hope I hear a message on dual authorship of the Bible. That's that's going to help me. My kids and I are arguing, and that's what's going to see me through. Listen, I understand that it's not the most time-sensitive topic, but you need to know this because it's important. We don't think Job wrote this book because, again, of some internal evidence. He seems ignorant of everything that happens to him. And since it was written much later than the events take place, it can only mean that when it was written, the information had to be compiled from other written sources or even oral tradition. Now, this is important for us to remember, and that shouldn't necessarily scare us or shy us away from the Scripture. It actually happens at least three other times with the Bible being written. It happens in the book of Genesis, certainly. Moses wasn't there, was he? He was given information, and he wrote Genesis. It actually happens in the book of Luke. In fact, if you want to turn over to Luke, real quick, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Listen to Luke 1. This is, this is incredible. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses 
and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke here is saying, I wasn't the eyewitness. I went out and compiled eyewitness testimony. And by the way, Luke wrote Acts. So it happened in the, the Gospel of Luke, and it happened in Acts. Now, in Acts, there may have been some of his eyewitness account mixed in there because he was traveling with them, we think. But that's important for us. You see, the Bible is a very human book while also being the very word and words of God. You see, this shows us, I believe, the importance today of how we interpret the scriptures. It causes us to study. If Luke had to study in order to compile under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we should study under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to understand the scriptures. In the same way that a writer of scripture exerted himself, so we now exert ourselves, not under the inspiration to write, but under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to understand. And I want to give you some encouragement. This doesn't mean that you have to be a nerd that just wants to read all the time. I'm not that nerdy myself. Maybe I come across that way. I think I'm cool. Maybe I'm not. (laughs) But what I mean by studying the scriptures is get into it. It doesn't mean that you have to open up some dusty volume of, of, uh, of, uh, what do they call commentaries. You don't have to open a commentary to understand the scripture. You don't have to read the scripture and then jump down to, see I have these lovely little notes down here. You don't, that doesn't mean that. Necessarily, there are times for that. But get into it consistently. Read it repeatedly. It is amazing when you spend time in the scripture how the scriptures shed light on the commentaries. Get to know the word. It's a very human book. I, I know I hear preachers say this, and, and I, I have a general a, a agreement with them, but we, we constantly talk about we need to bridge the gap between back then and now. You know, human experience is not that different. It's really not. I know that they were poor and agrarian, and we, we make this big deal that it's such different. I don't know. I see a lot of grapes on our, on our hills. We're pretty agrarian. There's 4-H. People have raised animals before. I understand it's not Exactly the same, but human experience is the same. Human desires are the same all around the world, even today. I'm telling you, you can go to Africa or Indochina or wherever where people are living crazy lives, and they want the exact same things you want. They want to feed their kids. They don't want their kids to get involved with the wrong crowd. (laughs) 
human experience is the same. So this book is very human and relatable that way. I don't think you need a bunch of fancy commentaries. You just need to be with it. It's like my wife. My wife just wants me to be with her. Sometimes that gets annoying because when we watch TV, I just want to fall asleep. (laughs) She doesn't seem to appreciate that. We're not even watching TV together. Okay, I'm sorry. But that's how it is with the scripture. Think of this as your spouse. Just spend time with it. I know I've preached to you some of my messages on Galatians. And I tell you, those messages were born out of reading Galatians multiple, multiple times. And I don't say that to brag. I say that because it, it was so enlightening to me. I spent a year, I'd go, I was working inside sales, and I'm sorry if you've heard this for the second or third time, I was working inside sales, and every lunch period, I'd go on a walk, and I'd listen to Galatians on my phone for like a year. Galatians just opened up to me. It was plowed and sown into my heart by this repeated reading of it. And yes, listening to it is reading it. I'm not a strong reader. I don't like reading You open up a book and it's like NyQuil. I just zonk out. (laughs) But listening to it, I get so much out of it. Maybe you're not a strong reader either. That's fine. Listen to it. Listen to it repeatedly. You can't help but memorize it at that point. So I just want to encourage you with that, that studying the book does not mean dusting off or coming in and getting commentaries. or It means getting into it and reading it. There might be something where you need some help understanding a particular nuance of the culture back then. Yeah, I get it. Most of, all, most of the time, you're going to just get it. Human experience is the same. Second, I want us to consider the genre of the book. Job is one of five books called out as wisdom literature in the Old Testament. The five books called out as wisdom literature are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Mark Dever brought out this point that I thought was so good. You know what's interesting about those five books? They tend to be the favorite of Christians. When you read the Old Testament, where do you tend to read? I doubt you go to Leviticus. I doubt you go to Numbers. No, you tend to relate to those five books, and I believe they are very relatable. I think these are some of the favorites of Christians. These books are the most accessible to us as Christians because they tend to be the least Jewish out of the Old Testament. And I would say, and actually Dever says, Job in particular is the least out of these. And that makes sense because it possibly predates Abraham. Even for non-Christians, I think Job has its draw. For who hasn't suffered? 
Mark Dever calls this book Wisdom for Losers. I like that title because it highlights what we need when we're suffering, when we're losing. What this book of wisdom does for us is it shows us what it takes for us to finally ask this question. What are you doing, God? You see, God's ways are mysterious to us. But we only think to ask the question, when we suffer. But I want to let you know, brothers and sisters, God's ways are just as mysterious when you're being blessed. We just don't think about it. Or we think about it superstitiously, like we're going to jinx it if we ask. The wisdom Job gives us is this. You have no idea what God is doing. No idea. See, you know what God has done for you. We look back at the cross and we can see what he has done for us. And we can even look back in our lives and see what he's done in our lives. And and we have a sense of where God is taking us. We kind of see in the future, even though dimly, but in the scriptures we can see we're headed towards heaven. I don't know exactly what that existence is going to look like, but we're going somewhere and God's taking us there. But we don't know what God is doing day to day in our lives. My dad used to say, don't preach to me about the sweet by and by. Tell me about the sour now and now. Isn't that the truth? Does life not get bitter? Does life not get sour at times? Young people, it's always happy, it seems like. You will face it one day, and maybe you have. I don't mean to make light if you have. Suffering is real, and suffering hurts. And the question that it brings out in us is, God, what are you doing? And here's here's the message for you if you're like one of Job's friends. You don't know what God is doing in someone else's life. I know you think it's clear to you. It's always clear to us what God is doing in someone else's life. You see, this is one of the ironies of Job's friends trying to tell Job what God was doing. They didn't know. Mark Dever brought this out as well. It was so good. Job was not suffering because he sinned. In fact, the friends were not suffering because they weren't as blameless as Job. Think about that. That is insane. That is totally backwards. The reason why Job's friends were not suffering is because God did not say in the beginning of the book, have you considered my servant? And then he named one of Job's friends. No, the reason why Job was suffering was because at the beginning of the book, God decided to brag about Job. 
because he was blameless. You might be suffering because you're blameless. Boy, if that's not a call to be blameless, that's not a call for righteous living. Now we understand Ecclesiastes. Try not to be overly righteous, it says in Ecclesiastes. Okay, got it, God, I'm there. Righteous suffering is a part of God's plan. Not just for his people, but for his son, right? Jesus suffered because he was the most righteous. So who is Job about? Well, Job is about God. It is about what God is doing behind the scenes. Job is about what God is doing for us, to us, and in us that cannot be perceived with the senses. God teaches us through Job that righteous suffering is a part of his plan. And again, not just for his people, but also for his son. Job is teaching us this point about God. God can always be trusted, but God can never be expected to explain himself. We have no internal evidence to the book of Job that Job ever walked away going, oh, that's what you were doing, God. No, no internal evidence. Basically, Job's life got really bad And let's think about how bad it got. He lost his family, kept his wife. And I don't say that just to make a slam on wives. His wife was a little bit testy with him. Curse God and die. Wow. Thanks for sticking with me, babe. Lost his health. Lost his wealth. The three things that we seem to care about most in this world, just gone. Then for however many months it was, they think it could have been anywhere from three months to a year that he was in this state. All of a sudden, things start getting better. He has this confrontation with God, kind of hash it out. Job repents of his thoughts, which he was struggling with, like I think any of us would have going through that. And then all of a sudden, he has, there's, there's like, 10 or 20 years compressed into the final half of the last chapter of now he's got 10 more kids and twice of everything. Job never seems to be told about the conversation that Satan had with God at the very beginning where God's bragging about him. Oh my gosh, just nothing. And is that not suffering in your life? Suddenly suffering sweeps in like locusts, just seems to eat every piece of joy that you have and then flies off and you're left there, what? Maybe a business goes down, maybe a marriage breaks up, maybe your kids go sideways. I don't know what the suffering is. All of a sudden you're left there with nothing, you feel devastated. Then all of a sudden the pieces start to 
maybe kind of come back together and you get some traction in life again and, and, and you still don't know what God did. You still don't know why God allowed that to happen. I say that compassionately. I don't know why God let it to happen. You don't know why God let it, to, let it happen. You may be ignorant of all those things going on behind the scenes. And it makes it sometimes more difficult. When we see Job finally hearing from God, there is no attempt on God's part to explain the last few months of his life. God is presented to us as we need to understand him. He is sovereign. And he is good. This is God's story. This is God's world. And we may never be able to explain it in this life. You just may not be able to. I think when we get to heaven, things will make sense. Spurgeon put it this way, those joys of the eternal day, they, they shine rays of joy into this world, but we still live in this world, and it's still hard. It's that our hope is a future hope. This is why I think this is why we need to hear this as a church I think sometimes we try too hard to explain what's going on right now. I think sometimes we just can't. We need to, by God's grace, let go of trying to explain the suffering that we see in this life. And we need to cling to the promises of God. Promises like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Promises like, I am near the brokenhearted. So let me give you a few other promises to cling to. Because I, I make no bones about it. This is really hard. Suffering is hard. I hope I haven't said anything to you that makes you think that I think of it glibly. Some of you are suffering hard things. Flip over to Isaiah, if you would. <clears throat> Isaiah 41. You know, brothers and sisters, God is not ashamed of your suffering, He's not. We tend to flee from those who are suffering, do we not? Ooh, you got some bad juju going on. I got to get away from you. God does not. He runs towards your suffering. He's with you in your suffering. He's not ashamed of you just because you're suffering. Look at Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, for, here's one of the first promises, I am 
with you. That's a promise. God is with you. Be not dismayed, promise number two, for I am your God. That is a concept we have to cling to. You have God as your God. It's not an idol. It's not a piece of wood. It's not a stick. It's not a tree. Hopefully by God's grace, it's not money or a car or a job or relationship. You have God as your God. I am your God. Third promise, I will strengthen you. That's God speaking that to you this morning. You need strength, desperate strength, to bear up under these loads that you guys have. And you have them. God will strengthen you. Get this, I will Help you. You're not doing this on your own. God will help you. Fifth promise, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. These promises, just a few, and the scripture is full of these promises. Those five I just, just jumped out at me as I was preparing for this, mainly because I heard somebody else preach on them. <laughs> you need to hear good preaching like that. Your God is your God. He will be with you. He will strengthen you. He will help you. He will uphold you. And jot down as the last promise is 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 11. This is in the New Testament. I wanted you to have something from the New as well. I'll read it to you. If you want to follow along, you can, but I'm going to read it to you. It's because I think it's so important. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. But we, that's you and me, brothers, along with Paul, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Your suffering isn't even about you. It's about God. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For who we live, I'm sorry, for who we live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that by the life of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Listen to this. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul is saying, I go through all of this because it passes on life to you. The same might be true in your suffering. Because we all suffer, and your suffering might be passing life on to another. I like what John Piper says. 
one of the problems with the health wealth gospel is it doesn't show people that God is good. It shows them, it doesn't show them that our God is good. It shows them that our God is gold. Nobody comes to God when life is good, it seems like, huh? God arrests our attention through suffering. And maybe not even our suffering, but through the suffering of others. I have a dear friend. They, are, they used to live in Windsor. They now live in Tennessee. She had some issue where her brain acted as if she had a tumor. She didn't have a brain tumor, but her body treated her as if she had a brain tumor. Constant headaches, totally debilitated. It was awful. And it's gotten a little better, but I'm talking it was years of this. Years. But through her suffering, it brought life to her neighbor. Her neighbor became saved because of watching how she responded through the suffering. Your suffering brings life to others. Christ's suffering brought life to you. Your greatest contribution to this world might be your suffering. Think even of Job. You know how rich he was means nothing to me. But his suffering has had more impact on the world over the past few thousand years. See, it was his suffering that made the impact. Your suffering by God's grace and through the power of the Spirit may have that same impact. It will be redeemed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for this brief thumbnail sketch of Job. We thank you that you saw fit to record that for us. Father, I do not think of these things lightly. I have suffered. I know it's minimal compared to the sufferings of others. Certainly minimal compared to the sufferings of Christ. And Lord, some in this room may feel like they haven't suffered. God, give them grace to see areas where they have suffered and where you've brought them through it. God, I ask that you would keep our eyes trained on Jesus for the times that we do suffer, that we would trust you through them, that we would not uh, see it as you forsaking us. Let us cling to your promises during those times. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these people. I pray that you would bless them, keep them safe, and see them through any challenges that lie ahead. I pray the same for me and my family too. We love you. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.